Tonight's Bible reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. It's 1 Corinthians, starting chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, with our brother Sothenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, good evening again, everybody. If you have God's word open in front of you, that is excellent. If you don't, open it up. Um, that would be good too. And I would encourage you, a paper, paper Bible, there's something extra spiritual, I'm not saying that, but there's something helpful about bringing a paper Bible to church. If you would like a paper Bible, then we can uh, certainly give you one. But in this moment, though, we're going to approach God's Word. Uh, it is living and it's active, and we're going to try and understand what it is the Holy Spirit through His Word is saying to us. But before that, I'm going to pray. Our good and our gracious God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living, that it is active, sharper than two-edged sword. And we thank you that it was written in this real world. And we pray that as we look through this letter of 1 Corinthians, that by your Holy Spirit, you will shape us as your people. We'll understand what you're doing in the life of the Corinthian church and understand what you're doing in the life of this church at Naui. Pray that you speak clearly through me and that you help all of us, brothers and sisters, here and across the screen, uh, engage with your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you know, and as we mentioned in uh, what I was sharing about what's going on at church, is we have coffee before church. And at coffee before the church, a key element amongst us is the coffee machine. And the coffee machine is well-loved. We do love the coffee machine, especially those that serve uh, behind it, have a real affection for the coffee machine. It appears to be doing its job. If you drink some of the coffee, it does taste like coffee. It's going okay. But if you speak to anybody that's behind the coffee machine, who knows what they're doing and what they're kind of working with, it's a bit of a mess. It's struggle street, this coffee machine. It's beginning to kind of need a bit of repair. But more than just a bit of repair, it needs like open heart coffee machine surgery. It is in serious need. They tell me that sometime it's just going to not work one afternoon. Uh, we're not looking forward to that day. But that is the state of the coffee machine. It is in need of some serious work to be done to it, but it is loved. And it's not the best illustration, but that is Corinth. Co the church at Corinth is a church who is loved dearly. Loved dearly by God, but man, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's broken. It's in need of some repair. It is on Struggle Street. But nonetheless, it is extremely loved by God and by Paul. And what this letter is going to do, this part of God's word, is that God, through Paul, is going to be doing a bit of open-heart surgery on the Corinthians. 
Paul, with all his love and care and clarity of how the gospel impacts every part of life, is going to write to the Corinthians and show them how far they have gone from the way of Christ, how far they are not following him and recall them back to Christ. And the scalpel that he is going to use is none other than the gospel. He's going to just continually call them back to Jesus, continually call them back to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because he knows that that is the only scalpel, the only thing that can actually change someone. The work of the Holy Spirit, knowing a person, then knowing the gospel, the death and the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And that's how Paul uh, is going to, tr- going to approach uh, the Corinthians through this letter. Now, before we actually look at the letter, though, uh, context is king. Context is everything. And particularly when you look at the letter of 1 Corinthians, maybe a little bit more than most, understanding the context of the city, of the church, and what's going on in the letter is extremely important. If we don't do that, there is... I guess a, a fear that we can really miss a lot that is going on here in the book of 1 Corinthians, in the letter. More than that, we could really misapply if we don't understand what is going on in the city and in, in the day of 1 Corinthians. And so what you and I are going to do together is a bit of a whirlwind tour of Corinth. I'm going to welcome you uh, to Corinth. Now, it's going to feel a bit like an investor's pitch to you, you know, come to Corinth. It's going to feel a little bit like an advert for a Kentucky tour in Europe done by your ancient history teacher from high school. This is what the tour is going to be like. Uh, we're going to look at, at the city, then we're going to look at the church, and then quickly look at the letter prior to looking at this passage. Firstly, the city. And when understanding any city, it's important to know where it is in the world, the geography. So there's a map up here, which you can see it's in the Mediterranean. So this is in Europe. Uh, You can see that Corinth is in Greece. And it's just on that little little skinny stretch of land in between the northern and the southern part of Greece. The other thing to notice is that Italy, which is where Rome is, the center of the Roman world, is off to the west. And off to the east, you have Turkey, Asia Minor. And then a bit further down, bottom Right is Israel, where Paul has been sent off, where the Jesus movement uh, began. Now, what is also particularly important about the geography of um, Corinth is that little stretch of land, what they call an isthmus, which just means an, a narrow section. You can see it there in, in close-up. Now, what happens at that isthmus is that there's big uh, trade. It's a crossing of trade routes. Now, if you're going to uh, travel by sea or going to send some goods via sea from the east to the west, you can do one of two things. The first option is you go around the bottom of Greece. But if you go around the bottom of Greece, it has a really bad reputation of ruining ships, of losing cargo, of the people getting drowned. Uh, There's one ancient writer who wrote, let the man who sails past Greece first write his own will. Basically, you're going around the Cape of Death, right? You go under Greece. That's where you're going. Uh, For most people, they don't really like the high chance of dying, so they want an alternative route. And the alternative route is across the land. And you can see in that little red box, there's like a roadway. That roadway is called the Delcos Way. And what happens is a boat will come into the Corinth Harbour from the west or the east, and then it would unload its cargo 
and then through animals and slaves and these kind of things, the cargo will be taken off the ship, transported along the Delcos Way onto another ship and then off they go again. Now what that means is that it is a city that is extremely strategic and it is dripping with money. People go in there to make a buck. Trade is booming, right? You want to get stuff from the north to the south of Greece, you go through Corinth. You want to get stuff from the east to the west of the empire, you go through Corinth. And people are coming, they're trying to maximize their wealth. They're trying to maximize the cut of this trade. You want to get rich, you go to Corinth. The opportunity is there. The, val- the, the value and the traders are making their home there. Which brings us to the second aspect of the city, which is the population, the people who, who lived there. Now, because it's a bit of the crossroads of the east and the west, the north and the south, it is a huge, bustling city. The historians think it's got up to 100,000 people in and around Corinth, probably 80,000 just in the city alone. It is packed. It is dense. And because of the trade, because of the work, because of the allure of the city, you have people from all over the world, the known world of the time, Egyptians and Romans and Turks and Greeks and Jews, and it is cosmopolitan. Corinth has all the nations, it seems, there. One writer would say, named Aristides, that Corinth is the common emporium of Europe and Asia, the market, the festival of the Greeks. Like you want something, you want to get something, you want an experience, you go to Corinth. That's where it's at. And that means it attracts everyone. It attracts the vagabonds, it attracts the philosophers, it attracts the merchants, the artisans. In our language, that means the entrepreneurs, the white-collar people, the, the blue-collar people, the tourists, the celebrities, the con artists, the, the honest ones, the ones that are trying to get ahead, the ones that are trying to make a buck, trying to grow socially in the ladder, the ones that want to have an experience, all those people, they're coming to Corinth. Now, it's not for everyone. It's a tough city, but that is the kind of city that we're getting into. And the other defining aspect of Corinth is that it is sex-soaked. Corinth is known for its very liberal sexuality. It is known for its sexual promiscuity. It is the sex capital of ancient Rome. Now, we'll look into that a bit more in chapters 5 and 6. But Corinth, they even made up a word. I don't know, Tim could probably say it better. Corinthianazo or something, which basically meant to be a sexually promiscuous person. Like, imagine, like, to be someone from Nawi meant you were sexually promiscuous. Right? Oh, well, that, you're very Nawi of you, you know? Very Norwegian. That was sexually promiscuous. That's Corinth. They made up a word. I found that incredible. Anyway, we'll get to that later. The next stop on our tour in Corinth is to know a bit of the history. So Corinth, about 200 years before Paul makes his way in there, in 146 BC, the Romans came and destroyed it, leveled the city, and then left it desolate for 100 years. Nothing doing in Corinth. And then about 90 years before Paul comes... Rome, under Julius Caesar, decides to re-establish Corinth and make it Roman, a Roman city. It's Greek, but it's mainly Roman. And they populate it with free people. Now, to us, that sounds a little bit, oh, sure, we're all free, what's so important about that? But the Greco-Roman society was much more complex in its class system than for you and I. To be free is the next rung above a slave. You're low on the social ladder. But you have incredible capacity to climb up the ladder. 
You have, you have the ability to grow wealth. You have the ability to get a social honor, which slaves have no chance of doing. So what it means, if you want to grow, you want money, you want fame, you want power, you can have it in Corinth. And the people who are free, they're all plonked there. That's the kind of city uh, that it is. All that means is that Corinth is the land of opportunity. You want opportunity, then it's in Corinth. Corinth had it all. And the final element of Corinth is its spirituality, the religious side of the city. And it was uh, spiritually pluralistic. That means heaps of different religions and heaps of different gods. For the people in Corinth and you know, throughout that world at the time, uh, the more the merrier. The more gods that you worship, the more gods that you appease, the more gods that you kind of sacrifice to and participate in the festivals of, the more chance you've got of good things happening in, in your life. So for the Corinthians, you've got people from all over the world in there. You've got all the gods. There was temples for days. And for the Corinthians, it's like, okay, Apollos in the morning, Poseidon in lunch, Aphrodite at night. Right? This is the kind of Corinthian way of doing things. They worship the idols of the human heart, just in physical form. Sex, money, power, status, patriotism, focus on the self. It was all represented there. And as I kind of paint that picture, for me, for a lot of other people much more smarter than I, it sounds very similar to a Western city, doesn't it? Sounds very similar to a city like ours, like in Sydney. Corinth, like Sydney, is very young comparatively to the rest of the world. The opportunity to progress is rife. It's there. It's opportunistic. The opportunity to experience the desires of the heart, the desires of the body, are certainly there. It's cosmopolitan. All the nations of the, the world at that time, they're in Corinth. It's pluralistic. There's so many different religions and ways to go about the spiritual life, much like Sydney. There's wealth, there's trade, there's opportunities to get money, to get it fast. The, op the opportunity to climb, the competition to climb the social ladder, that's there. And we see those things in Sydney too, don't we? Obviously, Corinth is pre-Christian and we now live in a post-Christian city but the secular soil is still very similar. And you would think that this kind of city would be postured so against Christianity. They've corrupted his good things and made them their own. They are their own kind of God. They'd be postured against Christianity. But where does Paul go? Paul goes to Corinth. He goes to that city, which is probably so against Christianity it would seem... And what happens is that a church is formed. Christianity takes root. And just as like a passing note, like we could think that a city or a, a people, a friend, could be so far gone, like no chance of God shaping them and bringing them into his family, no chance of them becoming a Christian. But the church of Corinth is an example that God can do anything, that his gospel is powerful enough to, to change anybody's heart. God can do incredible things uh, through his word and his spirit and the gospel. So in our tour then, we can now look at the church. That's the city and the people who make up the church. I just want to make two quick comments about the people who make up the church. 
made the comment about the free people before, uh, but what is unique about Corinth compared to the other cities that we read about in the New Testament is that they are majority Gentile, not majority Jewish. There's little Jewish influence uh, on the Corinthian church. That means there are a lot of new Christians there, and like new to the Jewish faith, new to understanding um, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. They come from like pluralistic, polytheistic worship, and now Christianity is about monotheism, one God. It's completely uh, different for them. It's a new church, got relatively few mature leaders. They're called out of paganism. They've been living this life which is against the way of God and now called to live this way which is following the way of God. Like it's, it's kind of no wonder that they were a bit of a mess. But that is the church of Corinth. That's the people who were there. And the other thing is that the, the people are quite varied in their, uh, their status and their social life. Some of them are wealthy, but the majority of them are poor. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 verse 26, Think of you when you were called. Not many were wise by human standard. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Most of them are of the lower end of society. But there still is the upper class ones. Perhaps the guy named Erastus is the public director of works in Corinth. You have uh, this person named Chloe who we'll read about next week. Clearly a wealthy woman uh, who's part of the Corinthian church. But nonetheless, a full spectrum is what we find in the Corinthian church. And so then that brings us to the letter. The letter that we're going to explore uh, together. Now, as you know, this is 1 Corinthians. And if you're familiar with the Bible, there's also 2 Corinthians. And if you're really familiar with 1 and 2 Corinthians, you'll know that Paul refers to another two letters. There's actually a letter that comes before this one that he refers to in chapter 5. And there's a letter that comes in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, which he refers to in 2 Corinthians. So basically, there's four letters that we know about, at least between these uh, Paul and the church. What's... What I'm trying to say there is that this is an ongoing conversation. We are entering into this dynamic between the church and Paul and uh, all that's going on there. We're entering into their conversation. But what has caused Paul to actually write this letter? What has caused him to go out the pen to, to, to write and send this letter? An expensive thing for him to do. From what we can gain from here... There's kind of two primary things that have gone on. There's some reports that have come to Paul. He's over in Ephesus, over in Turkey at the time. Some reports that have come to him. And also there's a letter from the Corinthians to him. Both things are very concerning to Paul. They're very concerning. And he feels compelled to write a letter. It'd be like if you're a parent and you have a child in school and you go to pick them up from school and the, parent, uh, the, the teacher comes up to you and says in a really nice way, your kids lost the plot, and then you go home and your child says, oh, Dad, I'm going so well at school. It's going fantastic, and I don't need to do my homework because I'm just so good at what I do. Now, as a parent, you're like, whoa, okay, let's, uh, let's fix that up. That's a bit like what these reports and this letter has done for Paul, and he, with his love and his heart, being compelled by the Holy Spirit, his fatherly attitude towards the Corinthians. He's desiring to point them back in the way of the gospel, desiring to help them see the way of Christ. 
And he's going to pick up so many different issues, issues of wisdom and leadership and unity and sexuality and lawsuits and their freedoms, the ways that they gather at church, the way they understand their gifts, the ways they do the Lord's Supper, the ways that they understand the resurrection, so many different things Paul is going to address with them, all under the gospel. But there's one kind of root problem. There's one problem that kind of pervades them all. The fundamental problem for the Corinthians is that they have uncritically adopted the culture from around them. All that stuff I was speaking about before from the Corinthian city is pervading the church. They are uncritically making it Christian or they're not taking it out of the church. They're more resembling the people of Corinth than they are people of Christ. And Paul's clear aim is to call them back, to call them to the way of Christ. They've uncritically adopted Christian, uh, Corinthian culture and he's calling them to adopt the culture of Christ. That's our tour. Now, I realize that was, that was a bit longer than, than usual, but it is super important to understand that stuff as we approach 1 Corinthians. And I do hope that that puts us in good stead. We'll refer to it backwards and forwards as we go. But I think it's also helpful to understand the history of a city. I think it makes it so real, right? These are real people in a real place in a real time that a real man named Paul wrote to, and they really read it. We too are real people who engage with God's word. Sure, it's written to them first, and now we get the blessing of reading it and understanding it for ourselves too. And I think that is a really incredible, uh, wonderful thing. With that, let's get to the passage. Now, Paul, he begins as he always does with his letters, with a lovely greeting. Hi, I'm Paul. You are such and such, and something nice to say. He says very similar in the first three verses. Let me read them for you again. It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even at the beginning there, we can see four times he's mentioned Jesus. That's his solution, Jesus. You know, that's the Bible, uh, that's the Sunday school answer, but the Sunday school answer is because it comes straight from God's word, Jesus. But there's two other things I want to point out that are, are particular here. The first one is he addresses them as the church of God in Corinth. The church of God in Corinth. Primarily and firstly and only, this is the church of God. It's not Paul's church. It's not Apollos' church. It's not some Sosthenes' church or some other person in Corinth. No, it's God's church. Now we is God's church. It's not Andrew's church. It's not Matt's church. It's not Taylor's church. It is God's church. He owns it. He is, we are his. And to the Corinthians who are status hungry, they're all about themselves in a sense. That's a correction in and of itself. But while it's still God's church, it's in Corinth. The church is still in the city. The church remains as a witness to the city. See, the Corinthians, and they're not called in this letter to get up and leave. They're not called to set up their own, you know, picket fence society away from everybody else. 
not called to divide themselves. They're called to remain in the city, to be a part of it, but to be transformed into the likeness of Christ in the city, to be a witness to those who are traveling through there, to be a witness to those who live there, that they will be the light of Christ. And then people will come and give praise to God and give glory to him and the hope that they will be saved. And as Paul will go on to say in chapter 9, that they are to become all things to all people so that they might save some. They are God's and they're in Corinth. The second thing to point out is that they're called saints and they're sanctified. Now, if you're around at at Norway during the Together series, the first kind of main talk of that Ange did called Together in Christ. If you want an in-depth discussion on saints and sanctified, I would encourage you, it would have been at the beginning of February, Together in Christ is a wonderful sermon to listen to. Basically, to be a saint is to be of God. It's not talking about the Catholic saints that hang up on the, the pictures, even though they are saints. We're all saints. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to him, then you are a saint. And a person uh, is therefore holy, a daughter, a son of God. The second thing is sanctified. Super Christianese word. You don't hear it really anywhere other than reading the Bible. Basically, it means you're set apart. You're set for a special particular purpose. Uh, if you've come to my house recently, you'll know that I've set up a, a, a track, slot car track. And I have these two cars. Not even anybody has seen them yet. They are my special slot cars. They only come out for particular purposes at particular times, and they are special. They are my sanctified slot cars. (laughs) Anyway, more than that, to be sanctified means that you are holy. You are set apart for God and his purposes in the world. And so what Paul is doing there is he's reminding them of their identity. He's reminding the Corinthians, this is who you are. You are a saint You are sanctified. You are set apart for my purposes in the world. And he's saying, you know what, Corinthians? That's who you are, so go live it out. Like you imagine you're in a basketball team, and in that basketball team, for whatever reason, you decide to run with the ball, not bounce it, not shoot hoops. Your coach calls a timeout, and just for that 10 seconds, all he says is, you are a basketball team. Play like a basketball team. Go. That's what Paul is doing. You are a saint, you are sanctified, you are a person of God, you're not being it, go and do it. And he's going to now address them more to that end. Now, I don't know what you would think would happen here. It's concerning what the Corinthians are doing. We haven't read that yet, but I've told you that's the case. How's Paul going to go from here? Now, before we do that, I want to tell you a story that I came across uh, this week. There was a 73-year-old, 73-year-old woman named Terry Horton. Now, Terry was a thrifty thrift shop shopper. That was terrible. Anyway, she went and she wanted to find a present for a friend. And so she came across this enormous painting and thought, wow, that is really ugly, but I think my friend might like it. Perhaps we will throw darts at it. And so she decided to buy it. The person was saying, oh, it's $8. She haggled them down to $5 and brought this piece of art. She thought it was messy. She thought it was close to worthless. Uh, She was just going to give it away. She went to give it to a friend. It didn't fit in her friend's room, so the friend didn't want it. Friend gave it back. Terry was like, man, I've really got to get rid of this art piece. She decides to have a garage sale selling the art piece. An art teacher comes and looks at it 
and says, that looks like a Jackson Pollock. And she said, in more colourful language than this, who on earth is Jackson Pollock? The art teacher said, well, one of the most famous artists and his paintings go for millions. Millions. So obviously she sets off on a journey to find out if she can sell this painting. The story goes, she tells it on a talkback show, that she got offered $9 million for that painting. She turned it down because she was told it'd be worth 50 Something, friends, may look worthless. It can look messy. It can look like junk. It can look like all you want to do is sit back and throw darts at it. But when you know whose work it is, when you know whose workmanship it is, it completely changes how you view that art. Friends, we are Christians. We may think we're worthless. We may think that we're messy, that we haven't got it all together, that we have no value that people just want to chuck stuff at us. But you are the workmanship of God. You are a saint. You are God's workmanship. And for that reason and that reason alone, you are of immense value. Immense value. And friends, that is exactly how Paul goes on to treat the Corinthians. He goes on to say this in verses 4 through to 9. I always thank my God for you. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, Paul, he is so thankful for them. He sees them as God sees them. He's full of praise Um, And he's particularly focused on the gifts. He's particularly thankful for the gifts that these these Corinthian people have. Now, that's going to seem really strange if you've read towards the back end of the letter because the Corinthians are abusing the gifts to no end. They have a terrible attitude towards them. They're self-serving. They're not other-centered, certainly not glorifying Christ. But did you notice where Paul addressed the thanks to? Yes, it's to the Corinthians, but it's towards God. The praise, the honor, the glory goes to God. It's like in a, like a big awards and the red carpet and um, the people, the, the women walk down with these really lovely, fancy dresses. And the journalists will ask them, oh, who are you wearing? And they'll say, you know, Louis Vuitton or something amazing. And all the honor, all the praise, it goes to the designer, right? It's not about the person who's wearing it. It's about the person who's designed the dress. That's how Paul is seeing these gifts. It's not about the Corinthians. It's not about their maturity. It's not about the way they're using it. It's about the fact that God in his grace has given them gifts. And that grace confirms that they're one of God's people. Unearned, gracious presence. They point to the greatness of God. And then Paul goes on uh, to say, verses 8 through 9, Corinthians, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is going to keep them to the end. He will hold them. This life is not all there is. Christ will not lose them. And it's all pointing to the grace of God. At the beginning, it was about the gift of faith and the the fact that grace has been given to by Christ Jesus. 
past. Past tense. Grace in the past. The gifts that they currently have in the present moment. Grace in the present. And then in the future, their life is secure. It's going to be with Christ in eternity forever. Grace in the future tense. Grace has pervaded every part of their life, present, part, and future. Friends, this is grace at work if you've ever seen it. Grace at work amongst a people that certainly do not deserve it. And sometimes we need to hear grace, we need to have it preached to us, all these kind of things which are necessary, important. Sometimes we just need to see it. Sometimes for the Corinthians, they just need to experience it and know it. This is grace on display. They certainly don't deserve God's love. They don't deserve to be treated as saints. They don't deserve the gifts. They don't deserve a loving, affirming, even critiquing message. But yet they get it. We see the gracious eyes of God on display here. But all that grace never is an excuse for sinful behavior. Never should it perpetuate living against God. It is not a license to go on sinning. It is not permission to have those blind spots not attended to the grace of god it must transform a person and so to go back what i was saying at the beginning paul well god through paul is going to be to do that transforming work in the life of the corinthians call them to stop living in the ways of the corinthian culture and live in christ-like culture to be christ over corinth to be people of the word not people of the world And friends, for you and I, that is our calling too. We are people who are to be distinctly Christian in an unchristian culture. And friends, there are so many different ways that we absorb things from our culture uncritically and bring them into the church or don't kick them out of our life. Things that we're blind to. And just because we're blind to them doesn't mean that they're not there or they're not going to be of pain or problem. Like if you're in a car and you've got a blind spot and you turn into a truck, it doesn't matter if, oh, I didn't look there. Well, you crushed. Friends, there is things in our life that we are calling okay that is just straight out not, that we've just adopted from the world and we think it's okay. The letter of the Corinthians is going to call us towards living as Christ would in this culture. And friends, I know to live in that tension is hard. To live in the tension of being the church of God in Christ, to being the church of Nawi in Nawi, is grueling. It's hard work. To be distinctly Christian in an unchristian culture and not flee from the world, it takes listening to God's word. It takes walking in step with the Spirit. It takes humility to listen to a loving brother or sister correct you or call you towards the Christ-like way. So, friends, as you and I, as we journey through 1 Corinthians, be ready to be transformed. Be ready for the word of God to do its work on our life. To do its work on our mind, for the Holy Spirit to do his work on our soul and our spirit. Because we are the church of Nawi, who are called to be distinctly Christian in an unchristian culture. And when we do that, God is going to get all the glory. And when he gets the glory, perhaps we will see many, many people come to faith come to know who the Lord Jesus Christ is to find life because the light of this church will be shining brightly to the glory of God. Let me pray that we are that kind of people. Father, we thank you that you've given us your son. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've blessed us with your Holy Spirit. 
We pray that we are a church of Norway who is distinctly Christian in an unchristian culture. Not because we hate the people around us, we love the people around us and we want them to know you and find life. Help us to know what are the blind spots that we need to be corrected of and change. Please form us into likeness of Christ, we pray. And we long to see your name be made great throughout this neighborhood and this world. In Jesus' name, amen.